Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Steve Pakin, one of Canada's best-known public affairs journalists who's moderated prime ministerial debates, interviewed world-leading intellectual and political figures, and today hosts TVO's highly acclaimed show, The Agenda. I'm grateful to speak with him as part of our ongoing Future of News series on topics including how journalism has evolved over the course of his career, the opportunities and challenges of working for a public broadcaster, and what he thinks about the future of the news media. Steve, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. I'm a listener and not only a guest, I I like what you guys do, and I'm honored to be with you too, Sean. Thank you. In preparations for a conversation, I went back to check your resume. You did a journalism degree at Boston University and spent time working for different outlets, including the CBC, the Hamilton Spectator, and a Toronto-based radio station. But you've been with TVO as a host for 32 years, including with The Agenda since 2006. It's been quite a run, Steve. Congratulations. You must have seen a lot over that time. Talk about some of the big changes to the craft of journalism itself that you've witnessed over the course of your career. Well, the biggest difference is technology, of course. When I started at TVO back in 1992, I don't think we could yet send emails. And of course, today, we are so technologically influenced up the wazoo that it's almost taken over everything. One of, And I remember having this conversation, actually, Sean, with some old film cameramen at CBC when I worked there, because I got to CBC in 1985, and it was the year when the corporation was converting from shooting all their news stories on film to shooting on videotape. And one of the things that one of the photographers I was talking to at the time said was, you know, I'm not sure about this. He said, I'm not trying to sound like a fuddy-duddy here. But the nice thing about shooting stories on film is that you have to get the film developed. And during the time that you're waiting to get the film developed, you're actually thinking about what you want to say, how you want to say it, making sure that you capture all sides, maybe even some nuances. And he said, my concern is now that we're on videotape, we put the videotape cassettes in, we shoot, automatically, it's all ready to go. And we go right into the edit suite and we start doing our thing. And he said, I, I'm not I'm not wanting to sound like somebody who, you know, always thought it was better in the good old days, but there was something to the extra time required, giving us that time to think that we're now not going to have. Well, okay, take that example of moving from film to videotape and now put it on steroids, because we're now whatever it is, now almost 40 years later. Put all that on steroids and the the time to think is even less. Everything's just so much faster. And I don't know that we humans are any better or any faster at doing the thinking part, the deliberative part of all of this. 
And <laughs> I think that is a concern. The speed of journalism, uh, Steve, is a subject that has come up a lot during our conversations. Another development that we've heard about during the series is the tension between the goals of objectivity and even neutrality and a growing expectation, particularly among younger journalists, that their work is in some way an expression of their values. Marty Baron, the former editor of The Washington Post, for instance, talked about this generational divide in our conversation. You've built credibility across the political divide over your career. I genuinely have no idea what your political preferences are besides the Toronto Maple Leafs, Boston Red Sox, and Hamilton Tiger Cats. Let me ask a two-part question. First, how do you think about the question of journalistic objectivity? And second, have you observed any fault lines or tensions on these issues with the new generation of journalists? Only every day. Uh, to answer the second part of the question. And in fact, I went to a lecture at Massey College just the other day at the University of Toronto, where the guest speaker was talking about this very thing. Uh, yes, I agree with you 110%. This is, a, this is a major fault line nowadays in the new journalism. I remember Dan Rather, I think, testifying at the William Westmoreland Inquiry. No, it wasn't an inquiry, it was a, a, a criminal case. Uh, Westmoreland, the former United States military man who had led various military activities in Vietnam, and he believed that Dan Rather's coverage had libeled him on CBS back in the day. And he said, during the case, you're out to get me. And Dan Rather said, no, sir, I'm not out to get anybody. I'm out to get stories. That's the tradition that I was brought up in. I don't seek a particular political outcome when I cover an election campaign. I believe there are many younger people nowadays, because they have been taught this way in journalism schools, who believe not only is it their job to, to figure out which is the best party that ought to govern, but then tailor their coverage accordingly to ensure that the party that they don't like runs into the roughest time. And okay, that's the, that's the way they're being taught to do it nowadays. It's not the way I think it should be done. I think it's a big problem. I'm still old school about these things. I still think that the job that I'm supposed to be doing is to go out and try to collect as quickly, efficiently, and accurately as possible, empirically provable facts, present them in a way that is objective, whatever that means, and I understand that's a fraught word nowadays, but try to present them as objectively as possible, and allow the viewer, the listener, the reader, to come to their own conclusion about what those facts mean to them. That's not the way they want to do things nowadays, apparently, and I think it's a problem. You've spent most of your career, as we've already discussed, with a public broadcaster, but you've also worked for private outlets, and you obviously know a lot of fellow journalists who do as well. What's your sense of the key differences in terms of the work itself? Does it change the issues, topics, or even perspectives that you bring to bear? Maybe put differently, Steve, how has TVO's public mandate influenced your work in a direction that's different than if you would work for a private company? The answer is hugely, and it's the reason why I've spent 31 years of my life there, because I think there is a very different mission between public broadcasting and private broadcasting. I don't say it's better. I say it's different. Uh, we need them both in a complicated, delicious media landscape. I wouldn't want it to be only one or only the other. I, I like the fact there are both. But there are days where I think I'm not in the same business as people who work in private broadcasting. And I'll give you one example. And admittedly, I got to go back a long way for this, but there have been plenty other examples along the way. Uh, when the New Democratic Party was the government of Ontario in the early 1990s. There was an attempt to unionize Eaton's department stores. 
the retail wholesale department store union wanted to unionize the workers there. And that was a big story because Eaton's is, of course, a storied department store, or it certainly was back then, been around for 100 years. And the notion that a union would be trying to go in there and unionize employees was a big deal. Did you see one word of the coverage of that story on CTV? No, you didn't. Why is that? Because Eaton's own CTV. It was called Bayton Broadcasting. The Bassetts and the Eatons owned that channel together. And as a result, that was a story that was never going to be seen on the six o'clock news on the CTV channels in the province of Ontario. Okay, that's an imperative I don't have to worry about. My job is not to deliver eyeballs to advertisers. My job is to engage people on the biggest issues of the 21st century in a way that they find engaging, enlightening, educational, and okay, I'll add one more word, entertaining. You do have to be a little bit entertaining. But I think it's a different mission. It's a different mandate. We have to have some viewers, Sean. We can't be so precious <laughs> as to think we can live in a gilded cage or whatever and not have to worry about viewers. We obviously have to have a, enough viewers to justify our existence. But we don't. We are not slaves to the to the viewership numbers in the same way private broadcasting is. And I think those few things that I've enumerated here make us all significantly different. Staying on that topic and, and taking up something you alluded to earlier, what do you think the role of a public broadcaster is relative to private news outlets? Is it to augment the private market by doing pure public good journalism? Is it to provide competition to private players? And how would your answer to that question shape your own work? Well, good and interesting question. I don't know that we're a check on private broadcasters. I've never thought of what we do that way. I think we're a complement to it. There are days that I worry that we are too big a percentage of the media landscape in this country. I mean, the CBC is a massive organization with a massive mandate. Maybe it should be a smaller organization with a less vast mandate. They're on air, they're online, they're all over the place right now, and they are a much more significant part of the media landscape than, say, public broadcasting in the United States is. But I guess that's another debate for another day. I just like to think of us as all as having different but similar missions. Like I, I don't for a second think that the people who work in private broadcasting don't care about what they're putting on the air and that the reporters who go out to do their stories, they are obviously interested in, in collecting the facts to the best of their abilities, to presenting them in a fair and objective way. I think, you know, in the main, we're all we're all trying to do that. But they're the 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 private sector obligation that they have to make money. And because, you know, you don't make money, you don't survive. And the imperatives that they sometimes have to follow because of who owns them, I do think that makes us different. And I know people will say, you know, you're owned by the government of Ontario. So what makes, you know, what makes you think you're, you know, any less encumbered by those kinds of political straitjackets? The, the private sector has its straitjackets. Surely you do as well. And all I can tell you is, I've worked at TVO for 31 years. I've never been told, don't do this story. It's going to cause the government of the day a problem. And I can tell you something. That was really something we kept, we kept our eyes open for when Ernie Eves was the premier of Ontario, progressive conservative in 2002, 2003. And his wife, Isabel Bassett, was our chair and CEO. And you can believe that we were all on the lookout for interference from upstairs saying, can't you take it easy on Ernie? You're really going hard on on this. 
And Isabel Bassett, to her everlasting credit, never had a conversation like that, never even hinted at it with me. She was absolutely straight ahead. She understood the significance of the separation of church and state, if I can use that analogy. And so, because everybody who occupies that office up on the fifth floor at Young and Eglinton understands that if we don't remain credible as a journalistic voice, free from political interference from whatever government of the day is, and I've worked there long enough to to have worked under three different uh, political parties, then we're nothing. And we don't want to be nothing. We want to be something. You anticipated my next question, which is, there is a lot of talk these days about the risks of state involvement in, in journalism, uh, primarily that it will undermine the independence of journalists, or at least their perceived independence. Talk a bit more about how you handled those questions over your career. How have you managed to achieve independence and the perception of independence while working for an outlet that relies on the government for a major share of its funding? John, I've just never cared about it. I've never worried about it. I've always thought, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm paid to do a job. I'm gonna do the job regardless of who's in power. If they don't like the job, they always have the right to fire me. I've always understood that. But here we are, 31 years later, I'm still there. And you know, having started when the NDP was in power, then the Conservatives were in power, then the Liberals were in power, and now the Conservatives are in power. And to me, I've never cared about any of it. It didn't matter to me who was in power. We had a job to do, and we intended to do it. You know, to me, it's a more interest. I, I'm I'm really less fussed on the question of whatever government of the day funds CBC or whatever government of the day funds TVO. I'm more interested in the in the potential appearances of conflict for the private sector outlets, newspapers, for example, that are receiving money from the government of Canada, who also now, I think, have to answer some difficult questions, not just CBC and TVO. There are some private newspapers who've got to answer some difficult questions about whether or not the money they're taking has an impact on their coverage. So, you know, we can't be precious about this. Uh, Everybody's got an issue on this. Well, I should just be clear, Steve, that that's precisely why I put the question to you. Uh, According to some estimates in some parts of the country, uh, the share of revenue for previously private news organizations may start to approach the shares at TVO and CBC, at least on a per journalist basis. So as you say, these questions of independence and as importantly, the perception of independence will soon pervade the entire news media industry in Canada, not uh, any longer the two flagship public broadcasters in the country. And in that sense, your experience will be instructive, not merely for those who work at public broadcasters, but anyone really in, in journalism in Canada today. Well, okay. The reality is none of us can get away from our perceived conflicts of interest, right? I mean, we are two-thirds, we at TVO are two-thirds funded by the government of Ontario. When we started 53 years ago, it was 100% funding. Now it's two-thirds. We understand the government of Ontario has other priorities. They don't want to fund public television in the way they used to. That's fine. We get it. We'll go out and try and find other sources. So we've got a conflict. We have an appearance of conflict as it relates to our chief funder. We have an appearance of conflict as it relates to corporations that underwrite what we do. And I guess theoretically, we have a conflict of interest when it comes to the moms and pops all over Ontario who send us 20 bucks a year uh, to help us do what we do. So we are in, we have the appearance of, of being indebted to all of those different stakeholders to do what we do. And, you know, the CBC obviously is overwhelmingly indebted to the government of Canada, whichever party's in power, and they put commercials on. So they have an advertising imperative there as well. And we've talked about newspapers now, which are supposed to be private entities, which are also now getting 
what some might refer to as uh, government largesse to help their bottom lines. So we all have this appearance of conflict right now. And I have to tell you, as naive as this sounds, I really believe the vast, vast majority of reporters, editors, everybody who's doing that job, they go to work every day trying to do the best job they can. To a skeptical public, we may not be able to escape the appearance that we have a conflict. But I genuinely believe that when people go to work every day, they don't say to themselves before they write their copy, geez, I wonder how this is going to play in the premier's office. Or I wonder what the minister of heritage is going to think if I put this this way. I just don't. We're journalists. I just don't think we think that way. I think we're too damn stubborn. I think we're too pigheaded. I think we're too, uh, we, we are too much of an independent streak to do our jobs that way. And if anybody tried to, and this is certainly my experience, if if any and it hasn't happened, but if anybody ever tried to come to me and say, you really got to take it easy on Premier Ford on this, or you really can't go so hard on the opposition leader on this, I would say, hmm, I'm pretty sure that's my responsibility to make that call, not yours. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. There's a prevailing assumption that in today's fragmented media marketplace, there's a market return for polarization and sensationalism. You and your program stand athwart these trends. Your show leans into moderation, nuance, and big ideas. What's ultimately behind the agenda's countercultural positioning? Is it indeed the public broadcaster model? Is it your own temperament as a journalist? Or, Steve, is it a bet that there's an untapped audience in search of serious analysis and debate? Uh, you've hit on all of them. I think it's a, it's a lovely cocktail of all of the above and more. Yes, we live in an age where the monetization of outrage and the monetization of tribalism is baked into private broadcasting. And I don't have to tell you, <laughs> Fox News will be at the top of that list. MSNBC would be on the other side of that list. There are just innumerable media outlets nowadays that are depending on toxicity and stirring it up in order to hit the bottom line. And that's fine. If that's what they, well, it's not fine. I can't stand it, but I understand that's the reality of the day. And there's not much I can do about that. The one thing I can do about it is try to offer a tiny bit of counterbalance to all of that where we are going to proudly say, we're not in that business. I have no interest in trying to stoke your anger. I have no interest in trying to you know, urge you to one of the extremes, be it left wing, right wing, whatever. We are, <laughs> we are, damn it all, we are going to plant our flag for moderation, for civilized discussion, to get out of the outrage business, because we do believe there's an audience for it. It does happen to be my personal temperament. And I think in the main, that is also the mission of public television, is that our, our job at some level has got to be adding to the enlightenment of our citizens and not just stoking anger for ratings. Others can do that. We're not going to do that. You've 
covered a lot of politicians. You've even written books about some. How have the incentives inherent to the fragmented media marketplace and the rise of the 24-hour news cycle, which we talked about earlier, influenced politics in your mind? Only badly. And you see it all the time. Unfortunately, you know, I see this at Queen's Park. I see this uh, in the federal parliament. Uh, Members of the opposition get up to ask questions, and it doesn't matter what party they're in. And it doesn't matter if the minister or first minister of the day is not even there. They will look across the floor and they will spit out a question. It doesn't matter if the facts aren't accurate. They'll spit out a question at the premier, at the prime minister, and they will clip that little piece of footage. And they will put it on their websites and they will send it to the people that they want money from. And it's a vicious circle. And they'll do it day after day after day because people do respond to that. Conservative people will respond to Pierre Polyev and his team when they say awful things about the Trudeau government, some of which are true, some of which are not true. And they can monetize that anger and that outrage. And similarly, at Queen's Park, you know, the New Democrats happen to be in opposition. And, you know, this just in, not everything they say about the Ford government is true. Some of what they say is true, and some of what they say the Ford government needs to be taken to task for, but not everything. And yet they will do the same thing. They'll take those clips and they'll put them on social media and they'll try to stir outrage and hopefully fundraise off it as well. There are so many built in incentives, Sean, to stoke the outrage industry. I don't know. I don't know how we get past it. I think one of the things we have to do, and I think this is a job where public television is ideally suited to do it. We've got to not join that parade. We've got to explain what's going on in that parade. We have to try to analyze and explain to people where the incentives in politics today really are. And hopefully through that effort, uh, people will get a better understanding of not just indulging in, in every outrage that appears online, but actually understanding the bigger picture behind it. I'll tell you a fast little story here. Uh, this has got to be going back 60 years. There's a premier of Ontario named John Robarts the big library at the University of Toronto named after him. And one of the first things John Robarts did when he became the Premier of Ontario was he got all the members of the Ontario legislature down to Union Station and on a train, and they went up to Northern Ontario on a trip. You're from Northern Ontario, you'd appreciate this. They spent a week train traveling all over Northern Ontario, getting to know each other, all parties, um, showing each other pictures of their kids and grandkids, so that by the time they got back to Union Station, they all knew each other pretty well. It's really hard to practice the politics of personal destruction when you've been getting to know your your political opponents, not enemies, political opponents. And therefore, I think politics was it was tough, but it was kinder and gentler. And there was there were fewer incentives to destroy your opponent. You understood that your opponent got to that legislative assembly uh, to do the public's business. They may see it a different way, but essentially you're all there for the right reason. And it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, and here I am going to sound like a fuddy-duddy, but it's one of the reasons why I think it was better back then. I think it was better. And I know I sound like my grandfather in saying that kind of thing, but we we just have so many disincentives to civility and working together nowadays that, uh, you know, I wonder whether we can ever recapture that spirit. I don't know. Tremendous insight there, Stephen. I would just say to listeners, if they're interested in learning more about former Premier Robarts, they ought to read Steve's book, Public Triumph, Private Tragedy, The Double Life of John P. Robarts. Looking to the future, you said you're not quite sure how to solve some of these problems. I want to put a future-oriented question to you. Our series, The Future of News, really is focused on the question of whether 
it's still possible to produce sustainable journalism? And if so, what's the proper role of markets in the state to do so? There are a lot of different business models out there these days, ranging from TVO to the hub and you know virtually everything in between. What's your personal view, Steve? Do you think we'll figure out how to rebuild a market-supported business for journalism? If so, what gives you optimism these days? Well, what gives me optimism is that it's a few things. Number one, I, I just wake up in the morning with my glass half full. That's just the way I am. It's a better way to, I think it's a better way to live. I think to get up every day and just think to yourself, we're never going to solve this and we're all going to hell in a handcart just makes it tough to get out of bed. So I start from a I start from a disposition that we have a problem, but but let's see if we can solve it. So that's number one. Number two, I think we are living in an age where We've got to just try to let a thousand flowers bloom. And by that mean, I mean, let's try everything. I understand why the newspaper publishers of the country went to the government of Canada and said, we need your help with subsidies to get through this because we perform an important role and and we're all going to die if you don't help us. I understand why they made the argument. I don't know if they're right, but I understand why they tried that argument. And I understand why the government of Canada is, is experimenting with this, whatever it is, $650 million fund to try to let legacy media survive to, uh, to fight another day. It may well be that it's a fruitless venture, and it may well be that these big names uh, that have been around for 150 years, um, look, they're dying every day, and they may not be around for very much longer, and it may be just a completely different media landscape going forward. We may not have these big general interest newspapers like the Globe Mail, Toronto Star, et cetera, going forward. It may be a market-based solution that looks a lot more like what you're doing which is, you know, I, I think you guys get no government funding, do you? No, we're principally supported by a handful of philanthropic foundations, and then we rely right. on indiv- individual contributions to augment right. that. So maybe that's, I mean, that's that's surely part of the future. There's also, I've seen this in the United States, and to a certain extent, I guess you could say that the, the um, Thompson family in Canada plays this role as well. You know, th- there are incredibly rich people who understand the need for you know, influential media voices. And whether it's Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post or Eli Broad, who's got a foundation in the States that that has supported newspapers, you know, we, we may have to restructure policy so that we offer generous tax advantages to very wealthy people so that they can give lots of money away to keeping some of these great names alive so they can continue to do the work that they're doing. As much as I respect what you guys are doing, and I, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys who sends you a few bucks a month and I do listen and because I like what you're doing. But with all respect, I don't think you can replace the Globe and Mail. And I think we still need the Globe and Mails of the world and the Montreal Gazettes and the Vancouver. I still think we need those legacy media voices. You know, the New York Times has figured it out, but they're the New York Times. They figured out how to monetize their digital side, but they are such a unique case. They may be the unicorn in this. I don't know if every newspaper in the country can do what they've done. But I'm sure I'm sure interested to watch how everybody tries to figure it out because it is a bloody fascinating story. What do you think of the various efforts on the part of governments to support the sector? Is there a way in your mind, Steve, to do it that minimizes the risk of so-called picking winners and losers and, and possibly threatening the perception of, of independence on the part of journalists and their outlets? Or should we effectively double down on pre-existing public institutions like the CBC and TVO? Well, I think one of the first things government probably has to do is if you're going to set up a so-called independent panel to decide who gets the money, 
that panel can't be made up of only your ideological friends. And to the extent that the current system is hamstrung, uh, I would suggest that might be part of the problem. You've got to have a wide diversity of ideological views on any panel that's going to give taxpayers dollars uh, to private companies in order to help keep them alive to do their work, uh, or else it will not have the acceptance that you just described uh, amongst members of the public. So that's first and foremost. After that, do we have to double down? You know, as much as I, this, this may catch you by surprise here, but as much as I would love the government of Ontario tomorrow to become a 100% funder of TVO and therefore, you know, restore the support that it gave to TVO years and years ago. I, look, I know we don't live in that world anymore, and I don't even know if we want to live in that world anymore. It might be better for TVO uh, to be less reliant on, and I would just say this for the CBC as well, it might be better to be less reliant on your chief funder and to be forced to be more entrepreneurial and find other sources of income, which if you're doing something that's worth it, you will be able to find. I mean, I work in a studio. My, the studio I work in is called the William G. Davis Studio. It's named after former education minister and premier Bill Davis, who set up TVO as education minister 54 years ago. And on one of the bookshelves in that studio is a picture of a man. And I look at that picture every day. And that man's name is Donald Pounder. Donald Pounder is not a guy anybody would have heard of, but he's a guy who enjoyed watching the agenda. And he enjoyed watching the agenda so much that he got in touch with us one day and he said, I'm going to give you $2 million. You do whatever you want with it. And that's why I look at Donald Pounder's picture every day. And I'll tell you what, obviously, there was something about what we are doing and the way we are doing it that he found unique enough to be worthy of support. And so, you know, we're constantly on the lookout for more Donald Pounders. And I know they're out there and they don't all have to be multimillionaires. I'm grateful to the octogenarians who write me, you know, every week and say, I'm a senior on a pension, but I really like what you're doing. Here's a check for $10. You know, in terms of my heart, that is as meaningful to me as Donald Pounder's $2 million. Not as meaningful, obviously, to our bottom line, but as meaningful to our heart, because I know that $10 represents the same thing to that person that Donald Pounder's money meant to him. So we've got to. We've got to make the case. It, it, we've got to make the case that we're still worthy of public support. And so that's why I go into work every day, because I want to make that case. Well said, Steve. You've been so generous with your time. I just want to put one final question to you. We started our conversation talking about your long career in journalism. Um, we have reason to believe that there are young journalists or possibly aspiring journalists listening to the Future of News series. Based on that extensive experience, what would your advice be to them today? Okay, a couple of things. Number one, if you believe you were put on this earth to be a journalist, and that is your mission, and you can't imagine doing anything else, then pursue it. Pursue it to the gates of hell. <laughs> because, I mean, that's, that's my story. My story is, that's what I've wanted to do. And 41 years ago, when I got into this game, I sent out a whole, like everybody does, 100 letters to different media outlets, hoping to get a bite, and spending a year not being able to get a bite until finally one day I did. And I was never close to giving up because I thought, this is what I'm meant to do. This is all I want to do. 
And so I'm not going to give up. And I didn't give up. And it took a year to get that first job because I was looking for it right in the teeth of the worst recession since the Great Depression, which was in the early 1980s. And it eventually worked out. Eventually, I got a bite and I was off to the races. And I would say to those young people today, if you genuinely believe this is the work you have to do, then just keep at it. Don't give up. Having said that, the difference today from when I graduated from journalism school may be this. When I graduated, they said, go out there and find a job. And today's journalists may have to go out there and make a job. It just may be different because, you know, jobs are disappearing by the tens of thousands every decade in this media landscape. And as a result, it just may be, it may be very difficult. It may be too difficult to find that job, but it won't be too difficult to make that job. So go make it somewhere. And if at the end of the day, you believe, you know, this is something I'd like to do, but frankly, it's too tough and I don't really have to do it. And there's something else I could do. Well, okay, go do that something else because we're, we're entering an era. We're hip deep into an era right now where it's just going to be really hard. Sean, there aren't many days that go by where I don't think to myself, boy, I just got in before the door slammed. You know, I just got in while there were still great legacy media companies to work for. And I've had the pleasure to work for a few of them, TVO, CBC, Rogers, you know, Rogers Broadcasting, AM and FM Radio 40 years ago. But it's gotten tougher every year. And so if you're really not fussed about it, go find something else to do. Because there, there are definitely easier ways to make a living. <laughs> well, that's the kind of uh, thoughtfulness that we've come to expect you uh, on the agenda and uh, grateful to share with our, our listeners today. Steve Pakin, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It really was my pleasure. And congratulations to you guys on doing what you're doing. Keep it up and I will keep listening. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Hub Dialogues featuring content for our Future of News series. For more on the series, go to our website, www.thehub.ca. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous and ongoing support of the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Meta is a contributor to the Hub's Future of News series. We thank them for their ongoing support. Today's program host was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. The Hub Dialogues are produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.